Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. You know, finding a service solution that keeps your customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at that networking event. And HubSpot Service Hub can help. So with the service solution part, at least it makes it easy. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and a chatbot to handle your frontline tickets so you could scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On a road, let's travel, never looking back. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My First Million, Best of the Week Edition. This is Ben Wilson, also known as Producer Ben. And this episode is some of the best clips from our episodes throughout the week. Nothing new, just a short rapid-fire recap. To start off with, we have David Friedberg, founder of Canna, talking about the power of thinking big, and more importantly, how to actually do it how to think big, and why more people don't do it. Let's give it a listen. You know, your, your team is only as good as you challenge them to be. And so they'll, um, you know, if you're not challenging your team and you're asking them, what do you think you can do? They're, they're only going to achieve a fraction of what's possible. Uh, great coaches and great leaders need to kind of, and, and technology leaders in particular have this unique ability to, I think, understand the technology and leap several um, iterations forward to speak to the team about where we're headed and then bring the timelines in. And that makes for, you know, an incredible sense of urgency and outcome. And why do you think most people don't do that? So thinking big, that sounds easy enough to understand. Sounds fun to do. Um, you know, I could hear that advice. Why do you think that's hard yeah. advice to follow in practice? It's a really important question. Um, so one of our principles at TPB is dare to dream. So it's all about creating that audacious perspective. You know, how big can this be? How big should we be? And um, what happens when you set a big goal, like let's say I have to go climb to the, the top of a mountain and I can't see the path from here to the top of the mountain. Um, there's a hundred uh, permutations or a thousand permutations on how you might get up that mountain. And you don't know which path is gonna work. Most people um, that are smart have been successful. And most people that have been successful are not used to not succeeding. And so uh, the orientation at that point is that success is all about doing something and getting an action that you expect out of what you just did. And so you want, you are inclined naturally as a smart person, as a successful person to only do things that you know what you're going to get as an outcome. And guess what that does? That limits your horizon. Mm. So then you end up saying, I'm not going to take the more circuitous, challenging route or path that might get me to the top of the mountain. But I can see that this particular path gets me you know, a quarter of the way up the mountain. And that may not, and you might know, however, that that means you're giving up going to the top of the mountain, but at least you know for sure that if you do X, you're gonna get Y. And I see this all the time. I see this all the time at businesses where the teams end up compromising on their big vision and they compromise on the moonshot because they're more likely to succeed and they feel more comfortable taking a shorter range narrower horizon and minimizing the opportunity set significantly and saying, I'm just going to go do this because I know if I do X, I'm going to get Y. And that feels comfortable and I know it's going to happen. And so they minimize the dare to dream circumstance. And then they always say, well, you know what? We'll come back and dream big later. But guess what happens? Let's say you're thinking about, um, I'll give you a very specific example because this relates to the business we're announcing this week, canna.com, which is our, our molecular beverage printer. But early on, there was a, a hard push to say, look, we know restaurant owners will buy this device. I don't know if every consumer is going to buy this device. It might be too expensive. It might not taste good enough. Consumers are so 
you know, fickle. If we make a device for restaurants, we know that there's an economic advantage. There's an ROI enterprise-based sale. Let's go sell in restaurants. And we'll make a bigger device so it can hold more and we don't have to worry about shrinking and getting all the technology into a tiny form factor that fits on a kitchen countertop. The problem is if you do that and you start selling to restaurants, you've now significantly minimized the opportunity to go into the consumer channel because you now have a customer and the customer is the restaurant and the restaurant's going to say, I want this feature and I want this feature and I want this feature and I want you to do this for me. And all of a sudden your whole team is going to be inundated with product and feature requests that focus on that much smaller, much narrower market. And you're going to end up going deeper and deeper into that market and you're going to lose out on the opportunity to go build for the big market, to go build for the 100x market that can actually change the world and improve the, you know, the, the, the problems that we're trying to address with this business. And so, you know, I've seen this at many different businesses where taking on a lot of technical risk, taking on a moonshot project um, is often foregone and, and you end up, you know, trading into a much smaller pie and a much smaller opportunity. And then you often miss out on that bigger opportunity. And so I, I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to continue to dream big and find aligned capital and aligned shareholders to let you dream big and shoot for those bigger, higher risk opportunities. Because if they work, they're 100 expect. All right, next up, we got a selection from an interview with Raul Pal, a former hedge fund manager turned entrepreneur. And Raul is someone who's really interesting. After he had made it kind of big as a hedge fund manager, he put all of his liquid net worth into crypto and managed to 10x his money or something like that. And so on this clip, Raul is talking about how network effects ensure the success of crypto going forward. You know, you, you notice certain characteristics like crypto tends to be exponential in price. So you put it on the logarithmic chart, it starts to make sense. You know, you look at things like copper and lumber, they tend to be mean reverting assets because you they get met by excess supply with high high prices lead to excess supply. So right now with oil at a hundred bucks, everybody wants to make as much oil as possible. So the price comes down over time. It doesn't happen with crypto because you can't. Right. So you need to understand the structure of markets, where the sentiment is. Is it overly bearish? Like a day like today, it got overly bearish. And so suddenly you start to see a reversal. So these kind of things are interesting. But my big discovery and why I really started loading up on Ethereum was another chart, which was a understanding that Metcalfe's law was the primary driver of all crypto markets. And in fact, almost all of the tech stocks that we've known today. Right. And once you realize that these are basically networks, and once you realize that crypto are networks where you actually own the network. So Facebook is a great network stock and it works perfectly on a log chart and it's an exponential, does all the things as you imagine. You can value it in Metcalfe's law terms, but the fundamental difference is shareholders and network users are not aligned. The shareholders mm -hmm. make the money, the network users get the utility. Along comes crypto, you ma marry the, the network user with the owner. Okay, now you've got network effects upon network effects. This is like behavioral economics right. manner from like heaven. Re religion meets Matt McCaff's law, right? It's like, yeah, uh, it's, now, yeah, it's religion I a, uh, now I'm tribal religion, about the thing. <laughs> it's religion meets capitalism. It's basically yes. what it is, right? So that is incredibly powerful. So I start looking at the fact that Bitcoin and Ethereum charts just at different points when they, at the same point in the adoption cycle, were remarkably similar. And then it dawned on me is they're all the bloody same thing. They're mm -hmm. all about adoption. So then, so, so if you look at it and if you're honest with yourself, Ethereum, if you think about Metcalfe's law, it's about the number of users and then the kind of connections between the users and the applications built to create those connections. 
Well, Bitcoin's kind of a one-sided one, which is a bunch of people own it as a store of value. Like gold, nothing wrong with that. But there's not many applications built in it. When you look at Ethereum, it's like, holy shit. I mean, this is like the internet. Right. That moment is like, okay, this is far superior a bet. Um, and so that's why I took that bet. And then I eventually shifted majority into Ethereum and then took other bets in the space to express macro views. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I have uh, one-tenth of the intelligence of you, but I did the exact same pattern. So, you know, heard about it in 2013, bought a little bit, dabbled, sold during when, you know, when I went to a wedding and my aunt was telling me about how great Bitcoin and Ethereum was, I was like, oh, it's probably a bubble 2017, 2018. Sold for a nice profit, was patting myself on the back. Uh, you know, in retrospect, worst trade I ever made. Should have just held everything. Um, you know, bought, started buying back in uh, in 20. 20, uh, 2019 or 2020, I kind of announced that I've, uh, I had moved 25% of all my liquid net worth into the thing, but that was right before, you know, another, another run up, And so that became quickly 50, 60%. And, um, and, you know, peers and some people are telling you you're crazy. I'm sure you had the same and same thing, you know, why are you betting on this? Are you just kind of speculating? And I said, no, like basically I spent my whole career studying the power of network effects, right? I'm trying to build marketplaces and social networks in Silicon Valley because I know that a network effect is the most powerful force imaginable. And, uh, and then I see this chart, this adoption chart of this new money network. It's like, well, if the, if the, if the social network was worth X and the information network was worth Y and then the, you know, the merchant network, which is like, you know, basically Amazon, um, it was worth, you know, Z then, then this thing is going to be, the money network is going to be worth a lot. I can tell you that. And so I was, like, I didn't know much more than that, but I just knew, if you can bet early in a, in a network effect that's still going through its kind of like, you know, adoption curve, um, you know, you'll do pretty well. And so that was kind of my, my, my bet, um, coming from a complete, you know, sort of a different, different take, but ended up at sort of the same conclusion. And I remember being impressed that you were talking about network effects because I didn't really see a lot of people in kind of traditional finance talking about that at all. And I, mean, I was I, like, I, they're missing the point, you know, really one of the first people to really start saying, Unless you understand network effects, you don't understand what this is at all. Because right. everyone's anchoring on weird things. And finally, we've got Sam and Sean talking about the Russian oligarchs. These are a handful of billionaires in Russia who control not only the economy and a bunch of the money in Russia, but also a lot of the power and the politics as well. So Sam is going over how it is that these oligarchs got their money and their power. So... Something that I've always been interested in is the Russian oligarchs. So have you ever studied those folks? Not studied, but, you know, okay, tell me about it. Okay, so this starts, I'm, I'm reading a thing, so you're going to see me look off. This starts on November 3rd, 1995, in a remote uh, Siberian town called Surgot. Uh, basically what happened in this small cabin, uh, an auction took place for the right to lend the cash-strapped Russian government tens of millions of dollars. So basically in 95, the Russian government wasn't doing so hot and they needed money. And so they got these banks uh, to come to this meeting and they said, we need some money. We need to borrow some money. And also as collateral, we're going to put up shares of some of the large state-owned companies. Because at this point, Russia was basically going from uh, being a communist nation to being a private country. And so they still had some like state-owned oil companies, mineral companies. Basically, like if you think of ExxonMobil, they like the government like owned that. And at this point, they were trying to figure out how do we make this so private individuals can do this. And so at this meeting, 
uh, basically only two bidders showed up. And if more bidders wanted to come, it was kind of a pain in the ass because conveniently, there were no more flights. The airport shut down and you couldn't even book a flight to come uh, into into this small town. Uh, by the way, your camera's... Okay, you're there. Okay. Um, and so basically what happened at this like small cabin is one company <laughs> made a bid to buy a or to loan money to the government they loaned it, they loaned something like 500 million dollars and that was like a hundred thousand dollars above the opening bid so people were bidding to loan money and so that this these, this bank loaned money to the government and then the government had to pay back the loan at a certain point like a, something like a year later and if they didn't the bank then was given the, the collateral, so the shares in this company, to auction off. And they could keep 30% of the pro, uh, profits. So obviously, the government didn't pay back the money. <laughs> and there's like a lot of like wondering why they didn't pay, up, pay it back. Basically, the idea is that the current president was like, obviously, this is all like, we're all planning this. So we don't pay this back and give us a little bit of whatever. So they collusion. don't pay it back. You're saying it's collusion. Basically, there was a... Uh, uh, a handshake, wink, wink agreement, basically, of what's going to happen here. Yes. And so the government doesn't uh, pay back the loans. And so now this bank is basically now has uh, a minority ownership in like 12 large state-owned corporations. And they basically holler at eight to 10 guys, guys who are already relatively successful. And they basically said, you uh you want to make a bid on this company? I'm going to make sure no one else bids on this company, but I'll give it to you. You interested? And that's exactly what happened. And, and why so would like, they do that? Why would they hook up these individuals in that way? They did it for three different reasons. The first reason, and a lot of this is just like hearsay. The first reason is the person who was president at the time. Who was it, Ben? What was his name? It was the fat guy who Yeltsin, had a heart attack. Boris Yeltsin. Yes. He was basically said to these eight or 10 businessmen, I'm gonna hook you up. You guys hook me up when I'm when I'm when I'm in office. Hook it up. I'm gonna hook yeah. you up. Whatever. So that's one theory. The second theory is that they wanted experienced managers in in, in to to run these companies. And the third theory basically is even though these eight to ten oligarchs put bids on these companies and basically they bought the equivalent of Exxon Mobil. So we're talking about like a company that's worth billions of dollars. They paid a hundred million dollars for this company. And so these managers, these oligarchs, these eight to 10 folks, a lot of them were mildly successful, but they were all in on the government. They were all friends and friends, you know, they're all homies. They basically, they did take on risk. So like these companies did have debt and like they had to go and like collude with other people and fire the rest of the managers of the company. So it was basically like a, almost like a PE thing, but it was like pretty dirty. And the government was like, yeah, we need, we want like these mercenaries to be in power because if they make these co companies better, our, you know, our government's going to be better. The, the Russia's going to be better. And so they basically profits after, after this whole deal, profits to these companies grow by 50 X market caps go up by a hundred X. And so there's, here's an example. The reason I got interested in this is there's this guy named Robin, uh, Abramov. What, what's his name? Uh, Ben, how do you say his last name? I think it's Abramovich. We're going to call him Roman. So the fact Roman that Ben oh, even knows what the hell you're talking about right now is, is impressive, and he's like a he's like a part of your brain that's like outside of your body, and you're like, uh, brain, what's that name? Oh well, yeah, here Ro it is. <laughs> Roman's famous. Roman owns. Um, we're just going to call him Roman. He owns Chelsea, the soccer okay. team. So he's like a famous guy, and he owns like this like you know 200 foot yacht. He's like a big deal. 
And basically, he paid $100 million, him and his partner, Boris, paid $100 million, and they've just... They came up with a little bit of money and then they went and hollered at like other rich people and they said, Hey, loan us some money. Let's buy this company. They paid a hundred million dollars for a company that is now like the eighth or tenth largest oil company in the world. So imagine paying in the mid nineties, imagine paying a hundred million dollars for ExxonMobil. Right. Insane. And so the these companies explode. Now, they explode partially because basically what these owners did, these eight to 10 oligarchs, what they did was they purposely tanked the company. So it sucked for a long time. And then they bought out the rest of the minority shareholders. So it was, again, cronyism there. And second, these were government run companies. So they're a shit. And so these private individuals, they did a pretty good job of making them better and they became far more profitable. And this created like eight to 10 guys that were worth like, up to $40 billion. So at one point, one of them was worth $83 billion. And, you know, things have changed, but it created so much wealth between these few folks. And it also like trickled down. So here's the craziest part is that uh, a bunch of the managers of the company. So basically there was like the pre there was like the, the minister of oil or something like that as a government official. He becomes, he sets up this, the, these, one of these companies, he eventually becomes president of one of the companies and now is worth $8 billion, even though he was like a, a government official. So I thought it was interesting because I actually wanted to read a book about these folks. I'm like, Oh, who's this like rich guy that owns Chelsea football. Let me like go and learn from him. And what I realized is like, I pretty much can't learn from him. I mean, I could maybe <laughs> learn some stuff, but like his process is not like replicable. I can't replicate it because he was like 38 and Russia had just fallen. And he basically turned $0 into He's worth now like $20 billion all through this cronyism. But I thought it was incredibly interested. Have you not heard about these folks? I've never heard any of that in my life. Um, it's crazy. It's like a, it's like the big bang for like Russian rich oligarchs. It's like there was this one meeting and it kicked off this series of events that like, you know, seems kind of unfathomable how that would be allowed to happen or just happen. Um, but then they also consolidated power, right? Like, didn't Putin basically, like, take all their money and consolidate so here's all the their power? Here's the second interesting part of the story. And I actually learned this from listening to Ben's podcast. So basically, Putin was considered, like, the anti-corrupt guy for, for, for a minute. Like, when he was elected, he was like, you know, I'm not going to stand for that nonsense. And he made an example of one of the guys. One of the billionaires, uh, his last name starts with a K. I'm, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's, it's, it's a challenge. He um, put this guy in jail for 14 years. And he literally put him, and so in Russia, for some reason, they put you in these like cages and you could like take pictures of these folks. Have you ever seen that? Like a like a Russian serial killer picture or anything? Like, no. it, Wait, so it's like visible from the outside, you mean? Yeah, it's like the mugshot, but it's like literally a cage that sits on you and people can come and like take pictures. It's weird. And anyway, this guy was worth at the time like $15 billion and Putin arrested him for not paying taxes, things like that, and put him in jail for 14 years. And he goes to the other guys, he goes... You want that to happen to you? No? All right, let's play. And so a lot of people think that Putin is the richest man in the world. Right. And he owns one of the most expensive homes in Russia, in, in the world. It's like a billion dollar, $2 billion house. And people are like, well, how'd you do that? And it was so a, a lot of people think. dollar house? Yeah, Ben was telling me all there about it. There is a like billion this, dollar house? Wow, I didn't even realize that. It's, uh, it's, it's it got like, it's, it's like got, got it's, yeah, it is like it's this whole complex. It's got private beaches. It's got like pools on pools. It's got guest houses. It's basically got a hotel on it. It's like a house wow. is maybe not the right way to think of it, but it is a house. It's a private residence for Putin. And but basically, like, there's no proof of this, but a lot of people, because even when the uh, Panama Papers released, they couldn't find 
Putin's accounts. But basically, uh, a lot of people are like, well, so he made an example out of this one guy. Uh, and he went to the rest and goes, y'all want to play? Let's play. And, and, and now, Roman, by the I way. I was really hoping you'd attempt a Putin accent there. Kind no, of disappointed. I'm not not going to lie. The story is good, but it's just missing that little something. I think Ben You are Ben it, giving me. it a shot. Ben, I think you have a little a little bit of the Russian twings in your uh, speaking. You could... Yes, they say me. I, they tell me I speak good in Russian accent. I will try. Is this like racist? Can I do this? Is this okay? I don't know. Don't worry. It's borderline. Don't worry. I don't think it's a race. This, this, we, are, we have the, the cancellation vaccination. You're allowed to do a, a, a funny funny accent here. and people. As long as it's Russian. If you're listening and you took that too seriously, just swipe over and delete the podcast and go on with your life. Yeah. And to wrap this up, basically, the way that these guys all work now is uh, a lot of these oligarchs are part of like the peace keeping like they're they're part of they're helping putin like negotiate peace so like the inner the way that this shit's intertwined is just bananas it's crazy and i was like trying to learn about these folks and i was like oh well like there's nothing to learn here i can't i, I can't do this like this is just crazy and these guys are so wealthy and and so it's trickled down but if you basically a lot of them when that happened were in their 30s like 35 uh 38 years old and that's why i got interested in this because i was i remember years ago reading about these folks i'm like how does a 38 year old become worth three billion dollars what the hell how did a 38 year old become ceo of a diamond mining company okay that's it for this week thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend i feel like i can rule the world i know i could be what i want to Uh, i put my all in it like no days off on the road let's travel never looking back